Uh, this morning, I want to talk about how to predict the future or uh, why Christ followers don't need crystal balls, okay? Why we don't need palm readers and astrology and that kind of thing. Our text is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the people of God. And he says to, the, says to us, all things are yours. He says, whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas or the world, life, death, the present or the future, all are yours. This text is saying to us that we're not just in a world subject to fate. That in a very real way, we're being told that our faith in God, our trust in God overcomes the concept of fate. That uh, because we can choose to trust or we can choose to exercise faith in God, that we have something to say about the outcome of our lives. That's, it's good news on one side because we can have hope that things can be different. It's bad news on another side because that means that on some level, the ugly part of our lives, we had something to do with as well, right? Ouch. Uh, here's the deal. Some folks believe that, uh, that things are the way that they are because God determines them to be that way. They contend that we have nothing really to do with the events of our lives, that the future is God's sphere. Uh, on this view, even our praying is not much more than an aside because all we're really doing is God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. Uh, uh, we, we just pray, you know, just because we're supposed to, right? It doesn't really do anything. Uh, things only happen, they think, because of God's sovereignty. Faith in this context means the believer is simply agreeing with what God has already predetermined to be. And you've got to face that question about what's going on in your life. How much of what's going on in your life is just, you know, God sovereignly demanding it that way? And how much can you play a role in it? I mean, this is a really silly, stupid old story. But there's the old story of Bill and Tom. They were brothers, lived on a rural, in a rural community and lived on a farm, grew up on the same family farm uh, as brothers. Uh, Bill really stumbled through most of his life. High school was kind of a disaster. He did get into college, uh, ended up dropping out of school, got married, ended up just a few years, everything falling apart, getting a divorce. I mean, everything Bill touched seemed to sort of, started out nice, fell apart pretty quickly. Tom, on the other hand, and he was just a bright star. I mean, he goes to school, he's you know, a great athlete, he's, everybody's very popular, you know, didn't have pimples, Right? He gets to college, and he's, he does great. He gets his degree in agriculture, gets back on the family farm. And just by virtue of his way of working with animals and his smartness about numbers, he ended up pretty much managing the farm. Uh, and uh, Bill, for all the most part, even though he's the older brother, ended up you know, sort of working for Tom. Tom soars, has a great family. Everything's great. Uh, Bill continues to just sulk and sink, loses his marriage, basically loses everything, and he's just sort of a, a hired hand on the farm. He turns about 50-some-ish, and, and the one spring uh, he's out on the tractor plowing the fields, and it's a beautiful, clear day, but out of nowhere comes this lightning bolt, wham, and hits the back end of the tractor. The big wheel falls off, and the whole tractor falls on Bill, and he's crushed he knows he's only got moments to live. He can barely keep his breath. His body's pretty much cut in half. And he's going, God, why? 
why is Tom at all this wonderful stuff? And everything I do touches, everything I touch is a disaster. And now I'm dying prematurely. Why? And suddenly out of heaven, this thundering voice came out. I don't know, Bill, just something about you that ticks me off. Now, as silly as that sounds, there are people who really think that. They really think just life is the way it is. It's because it's just been sort of dealt out to them. I'm saying to you that God challenges that. That, that somehow uh, people think that why happens to them happens to them is just, is just a circumstance or just God being responsible for all of that, that human effort is really inconsequential, uh, that that's wrong. But people of faith can be the worst about this. They, they believe that whatever happens to them must have been God, that there's no real personal effort needed. They, if their marriage falls apart, I've heard Christian people say, well, maybe it was never meant to be. How many of you have heard that? Maybe it was never meant to be, right? Uh, or, or, or if somebody, you know, is in a dead-end job, they're never, you know, they never go to school to develop their skills, they never put any real effort in developing themselves, and they'll say, well, if the Lord wants me to prosper, you know, he'll do it in his own time, in his own ways. They sort of defer as though because they tithe, somehow God's going to magically touch a dog who finds a bag of $100 bills and brings it to you. <laughs> they think humans have little to do with the future. That it's primarily God's domain. This is referred to as radical sovereignty. Everybody say sovereignty. sovereignty. See, we believe in sovereignty. We believe God is sovereign. But there's a kind of radical sovereignty that's like sovereignty on steroids. Right? Beyond the Bible. God, in this view, does what God does. We can't do anything about it. Actually, this kind of thinking really is a retread of ancient, an ancient pagan philosophy known as determinism. Uh, the pagans, those people without faith, used to think that the future was this constant repeating cycle and that, that humans just found themselves in a determined cycle that we could do nothing about, that what happened in our lives just happened. That they, they looked at the seasons like spring and summer and fall and winter and spring and summer and fall and winter and spring, just cyclical. Everything is cyclical. Sun coming up, going down, coming up, going down. It's all cyclical. There's no such thing as time. We're just caught in this cycle. That's what they believed the world was like. And during the Reformation, we couldn't do anything about that. During the Reformation, determinism found its way smack into Christian theology under the banner of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And even though there's truth there, it became so radicalized, and sad to say there's some folks still think this, so radicalized that some came to believe that God predetermined everything. Even when people before they were born, God predetermined some to go to hell and some to go to heaven. That kind of idea. This isn't the, the historical, orthodox, biblical view of God's sovereignty. It's something that's a little wilder. And though it is true that some things are going to happen no matter what we do, Jesus is coming back. We can't change that. It's just going to happen. Right? There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. We can't stop that. God will sovereignly bring that to pass. There will be a final judgment. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that God just simply says this is going to happen. You, you don't have any choice in the matter. But there is something known as time. And, and, and God creates time. And it's not just a locked-in cyclical pattern that's just predetermined. There, God actually 
doesn't just make a pattern happen over and over again. He actually creates time. In Christian thought, time is something that's hot out of the oven from God today. And because it's hot out of the oven from God today, he allows us to participate in it. God wants his creation to participate in time, which means we have something to say about what life's like. Okay, now watch this. This is a, a Paul, Peter said it this way. Blessed be the God and Father. We have that verse. Blessed praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us what? Into what? A living Hope. Say, I've got new birth that brings me into a living hope. It's not a repetitive dead thing. It's a living thing. It's an active. It's, a, it's, it's something that's not in concrete. It's something that's, that's dynamic. A living hope. Hope means an expectation of good. God creates the world and he creates time. And as he creates it, there's, there's this expectation that something good can happen. This expectation that something new can occur. This is how God calls us to participate in life. We don't have to accept that things are just going to be the way they are, irrespective of what we do. We can trust God to transform situations. We can trust God to transform people and homes, and cultures. A true understanding of sovereignty sees that God sovereignly has designed his created beings, us, to matter. We matter. <laughs> Here's a very provocative text. This is 1 Kings 22. Here's this prophet guy, Micah, who uh, is, is standing in front of this king. This king's name is uh, Ahab. And God has predetermined by his sovereignty that Ahab is going to die. That constitutes trouble for Ahab, right? So God has determined he's going to die. And so Micah is relating a vision that he saw where God is standing and all the angels are around God. And God basically is saying, okay, Ahab's going to die. He's going to die in this battle. How's it going to happen? And watch what happens here. It says, Micah continued, uh, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven around him, all these angels, some on his right, some on his left. And the Lord said, okay, who is going to entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? He's basically saying, the dude's going to die. Sovereignty has said it. There's no chance it's going to change. Okay. Then one suggested this. I mean, here's an angel who comes up and said, well, how about this? God, nah. Another one suggested that. Now, finally, another angel comes forward, stood before the Lord and said, well, I'll do it. I'll entice him. And then the Lord said, well, how are you going to do that? He said, well, I'll go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of his prophets. And God goes, sweet. He said, yeah, go do, you'll succeed in doing that. Go and do it. Think about this text. I mean, does God really need help here? No, but, but he invites the angelic forces to come up with a plan. God had some things he wanted to accomplish, but the how wasn't determined. What if God loves to invite his... What if God gave us brains <laughs> so that we actually use them? Amen. What if he actually cares about you, cares about what you think? What if he wants you to be successful in a career, but he doesn't care which one? I mean, you may say, well, what about this one? He goes, ah, that's probably a bad idea. Well, what about this one? Ah, not a good idea. Well, what about this one? Hey, that's a pretty good idea. What are you going to do? Well, I do this other. Good idea. Go do it. 
See, what if God actually gives us space to participate in our lives? What if he gives us space? What if we, get, what if we have a choice about who we marry? You know, some, some you young folks that are growing up, or, or maybe you're not so young, and you're you know, waiting for God to give you, well, God hasn't shown me which one I'm supposed to marry. Maybe God won't. <laughs> maybe the scripture says, go, he who finds a wife. That means you're looking. But see, sometimes we over-spiritualize, you know. You know, we're sitting here, a single guy, looking over there, a single girl, and going, Lord, oh, she's attractive. Oh, I'd, I'd like to ask her out, but Lord, I want to know it's you. I want to know it's the Lord. Is it you, Lord? And you look at her for weeks. And after a while, because you're looking at her, you know, the scripture says, whatever you, wherever your focus is, your heart goes there. Whatever you treasure, your heart goes there. So you start treasuring that person. You feel your heart. Oh, man, the Lord is, the Lord showed me that she's supposed to be my bride. Now, of course, you haven't said a word to her yet. <laughs> and so you go over to eventually, by the time you're so convinced and you've heard your word from the Lord, you go up to her, instead of talking to her, being nice, trying to win her, you just go up to her, hi, the Lord God has revealed to me that you're supposed to be my bride. <laughs> and she rejects you, but that's okay. She's just rejecting the Lord. <laughs> no, no, here's the problem, is that, how do you say this nicely? You're, you're, you're an idiot. <laughs> yes, you need to take the risk of asking the girl out. You need to take the risk of trying to get closer to the person. Listen, any of the good women will reject you two or three times. Listen, you want to marry up, which means it's a hard road. Hard road. Right? Right? But, but you got it. What the reality is most of the time we want God to do something because we're afraid of the risk. You know, Lord, bless me financially. Well, why don't you go back to school? What? That'd cost money. That'd be hard. Well, did the Lord tell you to work at the gas station for all your life? Well, no. Well, how come he has got how come he doesn't have to tell you to do that, but he has to tell you when it's something hard? See, listen, sometimes we use our faith to preempt our work. Sometimes we use our faith as a cop-out for, for what we need to really do. Sometimes, this may shock you, but sometimes when people talk to me about their problems, I always ask them the question. I'll say, now listen, you know I'm a Christian, right? Right. You know I love the Lord, right? Right. You know, I totally believe in God, right? Yes. You know that, right? Yes. Okay, what would you do if there was no God? What do you mean? What would you do? Say, well, I probably did this. I said, well, maybe that's God. See, because sometimes people lean so much on their faith that they, they're actually not walking by faith. They're walking by fake. F-A-K-E. Yep. Right. My point is this morning is that somehow this all-powerful, all-knowing, wonderful Father actually cares about what you think yep. and what you want. I mean, who can read the narrative of, narrative of Scripture? And not be forced to bear witness to the very important reality that humans have something to say about what turns out here. That God actually hears us and it influences him. I mean, you, how can you forget that amazing dispute between Moses and God on Mount Sinai? This is Exodus 32, where God, you know, is standing there before Moses. Moses had just brought the Ten Commandments down, and all of these Israelites were just whacked. I mean, they, had, they were running around naked, and, and they were worshiping this golden calf, and they had just gone crazy. And, and God, Moses dropped the commandments and yelled at him and stuff, and God said, let me just kill them all. 
Let me just wipe them out. And Moses goes, no, no, no. He pleads. He has these impassioned pleas with the Lord. And the text ends by the scripture saying, and God changed his mind. What if God loves to change his mind from the cries of human hearts? What if sometimes what God says is going to happen doesn't really have to happen? But he's looking to see whether any of us will call out to him and make a case. Who can forget that amazing story uh, in the scripture where, <laughs> I mean, you're surprised because here's this King Hezekiah, he's another king in Israel. This is over in Isaiah 38. This big time prophet, Isaiah, we know he's big time because he's got a fat book in the Old Testament. This big time prophet, Isaiah, comes to Hezekiah, sent by God, and here's the message. Prepare your house, Hezekiah. Today you're going to die. This will ruin your day. The scripture says that Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he began to cry out. We don't know what he said, but somehow he opened his heart to God in a fresh way. And as Isaiah's walking out of the palace, he's out in one of the yards, one of the courtyards. Well, he's out in the middle of that. The Lord speaks to Isaiah as he's leaving the palace and says, go back. Tell Hezekiah I've added 15 years to his life. God changing his mind, God changing his decrees because somehow from a biblical standpoint, it's not crazy to suggest that human beings actually participate in making history, in creating the future. How wonderful is that? <laughs> My point this morning is that on some level, you and I get to predict the future. I mean, even on a natural standpoint, which says a lot about God's character. Remember, uh, Romans says that we can tell what God is like from the creation. And one of the things we see in the creation is that why, if, we couldn't, if we're not supposed to control some things, why did God create a world filled with natural laws? Laws so specific, so predictable, that we can send a person to the moon and predict within a fraction of a second when he or she will land there. How can we know that with that specificity? Because the laws are that consistent. I mean, what if there are spiritual laws like that? That if we learn to cooperate with God, that, we can, that God tells us his laws so that we can actually gain more control over our lives. So that we just don't have to sit back. I mean, let me remind you of the text again we began with. Paul says, all things are yours. No more boasting about men. All things are yours yours. <laughs> he says, whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas or the world, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours. Now, I'm not suggesting, nor do I think Paul is suggesting that we control everything. We don't. We're not God. Gail and I raised four kids. We were out of control most of the time. I've been pastoring since my 30th, I'm in my 30th year of pastoring. I've pastored thousands of people. I've never controlled them. But I, I, I'm, I'm, I think that what God allows us to do is influence. That we have a say in some of the things that happen. Nor am I suggesting that we control God. But that doesn't mean that we can't influence outcomes. That doesn't mean when we begin to engage and, and grab the laws that we understand that we can't begin to see things change. Not every time, but maybe lots of times. <laughs> There's a, a guy that, uh, well, actually this lady called me, one of the ladies that attend our, our community in, in Tulsa. She called me last year, middle of last year. 
She said, my dad's dying. His name is Bob. He's uh, stage four cancer, unresponsive to all the treatments. They even brought him to Houston. They did these special things in his liver where they were sending in these pods. It was an experimental thing where they would, had radiation pods. They were trying to get close to the tumors and <coughs> nothing was working. They finally sent him home, said, you have about four to eight weeks and you'll be dead. When I saw him, it was several weeks after that, and uh, he was, his kidneys were beginning to shut down. He was dying. And a week, so I'm sitting down with Bob. I said, Bob, listen to me. He, he came from a Christian background, but it was, he came from the tradition that, you know, whatever happened to you, you know, was God. So, you know, he's lucky God didn't kill him before, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And so, you know, I'm telling him, hey, listen, God loves you. And here's what I said. I said, listen, Bob, God's got these promises, promises of healing, promises of a long life, promises of blessing in your life. I, I said, I think they're invitations. I mean, they're not, they're not things you can manipulate God with or hold them, you know, say, God, you said, I don't think you can do that. But I think you can bring them and say, God, this is what you said. It's like a great story in the Old Testament where David said, the only reason I'm, I have confidence to pray this is because you said it. I love that. We're not bossing God, but we say, God, the only reason I have confidence to pray this is because you said it. You're inviting me to ask. And so I told him, I said, listen, Bob, I said, I prayed for people and, and taking these promises, and they've been healed. I mean, physically healed. And I said, and, but i, I got to be honest with you, I prayed for some people and took these promises, and they died. Truth be told, everyone I pray for dies. <laughs> right? I said, but, but I, and, and I, don't, I don't know how it all works. See, I used to know, used to know how it all worked. When I was in my 20s, dude, I knew how it all worked. Must have gone. Right? Well, <laughs> So I told him, I don't know exactly how this all works. I said, but, you know, here's a time in David's life where, where his son is dying, and he's crying out to God night and day, seven nights and seven days, crying to God, fasting, seeking God. And, and after, after he got done praying, the kid died. But, but, but what, the way God helped David there was that he helped him deal with it in an appropriate, appropriate, appropriate way. I said, maybe when we pray, you'll just die a lot better than you're dying now. I said, but then we got Hezekiah, and he turned his face toward God, and I told him the story I just told you. And I said, God added years to his life. I said, maybe that's what God will do. I said, all I know is that following Jesus, opening your life to Jesus, turning your whole heart to Jesus is a good thing to do. Would you like to do that? He said, absolutely. So now he wasn't a member of our church, still isn't. I mean, he lives a distance away from Tulsa. And so I prayed with him, and I prayed that way. I said, God, we would love to see you add years to Bob's life. God, we're taking your promise. This is what you said. We're trusting you to that end. Got done praying, finished praying. Uh, I didn't hear from him for you know, a couple of months. It was January. His, his daughter told me, he said, he appears to be getting better. I said, well, that's cool. So in January, he calls me, said, the doctors can't find any cancer in his body. It's been, it's been almost a year, almost a year. Now, I don't know how much longer he lives. All I know is that somehow God lets us participate in the future. Somehow, we can influence the world. Somehow, in fact, one place, Paul, uh, John it is, it says, faith overcomes the world. We don't have to just sit back and just wait for things to happen. We can actually participate in the world. Paul even wrote in one place, this is a very interesting text. This is Galatians 6. Think of this one. He says, do not be deceived. Don't be tricked. Don't get hoodwinked on this. God cannot be mocked. In other words, he's serious about what he's about to say here. A person reaps what a person sows. You reap what you, 
what you sow. See, this text is asserting that the way we participate in the world that we're in is, is a lot like a farmer participates in the law of nature. That the spiritual laws work a lot like the laws of nature. See, a farmer who wants the earth to yield a corn crop has got to learn how to cooperate with nature to get it. He's got to take corn seed. He's got to wait for the right season. He's got to plant it deep enough. He's got to make sure it has enough water. I mean, all that stuff to make sure that that harvest comes. But, but just nature does not select the harvest for the farmer. Nature does not select the harvest for the farmer. What if God is not the one that wants to do all your choosing? What if he's okay about you not being very happy? But you've got to want to be more happy. You've got to want to have more peace. You've got to cooperate with the laws that bring more peace. You've got to sow peace to reap peace. Maybe he's, okay, maybe he's okay with you not having much love in your life. Maybe he wants you to learn how to sow love so you can have love. Maybe, maybe, maybe some people say, well, I'm, I just don't have any friends. Nobody's friendly. If you don't have friends, maybe, maybe you need to learn how to be friendly. Amen. Right? What if, what if, you, see, you know what I'm saying? What if it's not... What, what, if, what if the reason you don't have any friends is because you want friends to make you look better? You don't want to be a friend. You want to use somebody. I want to be friends with her. She's cool and pretty, and I want to be cooler and prettier. So if I get next to her, or I want to be friends with him because he's like close to the boss, or he's like in leadership. And if I get close to him, then I can be like better, or people will see me better. So you're not really wanting friendship. You are using people. Jesus said, if you want to be a friend, be friends to people who need friends. Give yourself. Learn to love one. Sister Joseph Marie, she's a Catholic nun. Such a wonderful lady um, in Marshfield. She was part of the charismatic renewal. And the thing I learned from Sister Joseph was everyone she was in front of, I mean, she had, she was not a beautiful woman. <laughs> you know, I, I hope she doesn't mind me telling you that. But her teeth were you know, she just, but, and she'd throw them out there. You know, so it was almost a caricature. You know, wing, and, but she had the loveliest soul that everybody wanted to be around her. You know why? Because she loved everyone as if they were rock stars. She had this sense every time anybody walked in the room, there you are, not here I am. <laughs> See, this is the great secret that I learned from Sister Joseph. I, when I, I'm telling you, when I walked in here today, as I stand here, when I walk around people, I always think, there you are, there you are. And I, I'm serious, in my heart I think, I get to be for these people, there you guys are, there you are. I never think, here I am, aren't you blessed? <laughs> Everybody loves to be loved. Everybody loves to be celebrated. And if you learn to move toward people and celebrate them in your heart, and everyone's a VIP, everyone's a very important person, everyone has the mark of God, everyone you're delighted to see, you will have more friends than you can handle. Amen. It's up to you. What are you going to sow? Don't be tricked. Whatever you've sown, you reap. Your life is the way it is because you are the way you are. <laughs> now nah, I went and did it, didn't I?
just lost my notes. It's probably God's will. Here's what I'm saying to you. It's just as simple as two plus two equals four, right? If you are mean to your spouse and you never talk about it, it will equal divorce. If you go out every single night and drink till you're drunk and you do it over 10 years plus 10 years, it will equal alcoholism, right? If you spend more money than you make and stack up your credit cards, it will equal bankruptcy, right? See, it's just simple. But if you want to change that, same deal. If you decide in your heart to celebrate your spouse and put them ahead of your job, plus you really give them undivided attention, it will equal a marriage that's enriched. See, th this is not rocket science. The problem is, most of us know, and this is the truth, most of you know what to do. You just don't do it. And here's the good news. You don't have to do it by yourself. This is the God factor. This is where your faith comes in. See, your faith doesn't come in so that God just wiggles his nose boop, 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 and changes that toad you married into a prince. Charming. See? Or that, that relationship you have on the job that you just wish God would either save them or kill them so that you could be... You can work with Christians because it's so hard to work with pagans who just make you crazy. See, what if God doesn't want to just change your externals when he changes? Maybe God wants to change you. Oh. Oh. My brother Steve, I hated my brother Steve. He was the oldest in our family, never got along with him. It was oil and water through two or three years apart. I thought he was a nutcase, seriously. I'm 14, he's 16, or I was well, 13 and a half, he's 16. He got in trouble, got sent away to a reform school, one of those juvenile detention things for a couple of years. I finished high school, he was still in that detention. I was, I hate to say this, I was a Christian, but I was delighted he was out of the house. I thought I'd be done, I just thought I was done with him. He went into the Navy, didn't see him, I'm done with him. Well, all of a sudden I end up in one of the jobs in college, flipping burgers, and guess who happened to get a job? Right next to me, <laughs> Steve, he showed up again. Then I, I'm in college, some of my favorite classes. Guess who was in two of my favorite classes? Steve. And then I, I get an apartment, two other guys, two other guys. I'm in all the people in the world, two other guys. And guess who one of the guys was? Steve. Now, here's the deal. It wasn't Steve at all. But there were people exactly like him. It was invasion of the body snatchers. They had different faces, different looks, different, but they were saves. They were all over my world tormenting me until I forgave my brother Steve and said, God, how do I deal with this personality? And until I got forgiveness in my soul and let it go, all of a sudden, the Steve stopped irritating. Why did God change it? Because he eliminated Steve's? No, he changed Ed. See, some of you run from circumstance to circumstance, sometimes marriage to marriage. Because you're thinking, I just need to change. I just need to change what's going on. I hate my job. I hate my boss. And then you leave and you get that new job with that new boss. Three or four months go by, all is well, and all of a sudden, ah, they turn back into Steve. <laughs> They're all over the world, and they will continue to be because God is interested in changing you, not your stuff.
But the point is you don't have to do it alone. God will grace you. That means he'll help you do what you cannot do. One last story. Three years ago, diagnosed type 2 diabetes. It's no surprise. Because <laughs> I love anything sweet. Right? And I've got a Hispanic background. I just, the, 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 it just added up to problems. I'm in the doctor. I'm feeling sluggish. He tells me type 2 diabetes. My first reaction is, oh, God, turn to the walls. Heal me. God, please heal me. Your word says I'm healed. By your stripes, I'm healed. I'm trusting for healing. The earth, the sky is brass. There's no response from heaven. You know what that means? I've got to learn to re-eat. It's enough to make a man cuss. A Christian man. I've got to learn to exercise more. Day in, day out, getting up, going for a walk, not stuffing my face with everything that tastes good. I love pie. I love pie. And God wants me happy. Pie makes me happy. So do donuts. Donuts, donuts make me as happy as pie. Right? Hot fudge Sundays, they make me happy. So, you know what I've had to learn in the last three years? I've learned that I have to get my sugar under control. I've got to prick myself, test the blood. I've got to watch what I eat. I've got to watch the pasta. I've got to watch all that. Do I like doing that? No. Do I stumble once in a while? Yes, once in a while. Yesterday when I arrived in Green Bay, I came and I'm by myself and I'm driving by Culver's. And I fell hard. But today's a new day. You don't have to be perfect. If you're a person that always loses your temper, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be able to turn to the one you lose your temper and say, that's, that God's dealing with me. I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to figure what happens when I lose control and I react this way. I'm asking God to help me figure it out. Please, please forgive me. I want to grow. I want to be. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to keep running back. You keep after running back. It's like when you learn to walk, you just walk for a little bit. Did you ever notice that when kids start walking? How many has been a while since you boomed? See, you'll get better! just the way it works. Listen, you can have a different future. Let's stand. <laughs> Precious Father, thank you that you listen to us. Thank you that you have some predetermined things that we can do nothing about because you really are sovereign, but, but you have sovereignly chosen that we can have more influence in the world. Not control over people or over you, but but influence so that we can actually sow to certain things and actually reap harvests, blessing, strength. I pray for everyone of us here. Most of us know what to do to make friendships better, marriages better. We just, we just don't do it. I'm asking you for a spirit of repentance. I'm asking you to help us repent from being naughty. Stubborn, resistant. Forgive us for our really pushing back from you. And help us 
begin to sow today into this new day hot out of the oven of God to see a new future, we ask in Jesus' name. As every head bowed and every eye closed, we're just, we're just about ready to come to the communion table. Such a wonderful moment. And all of you are invited to do this with us if you're a Christ follower. To open ourselves to the body and blood of Christ. But before we do that, even though everybody's welcome, there is a warning in Scripture that simply says, when you come to partake of the table, the body and the blood of Christ, that we're to make sure our hearts are in the right direction. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer here in just a moment that will do two things. One, for those of you that are solid Christ followers, you've been following him, and understand what that means, that you'll be able to have a refreshing of your soul, a recommitment of your heart. But then there's some of you that maybe either are running from God or maybe you've never really surrendered your life to God. This might be your first time. You have something to look forward to here in this moment. When you just simply say yes to Jesus in your heart. Let me lead you, everybody please, after me. Dear God, I want to say yes to Jesus Christ. Something in my heart nudges me, provokes me to say yes to invite you, Jesus, to take charge in my life. I surrender to you. I want you to be my Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, my strength and my redeemer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If that's the first time you've received Christ, give me that book, would you? Thanks, Keith. Uh, I want to invite you to stop at the table in the back, information table. It's a book called Getting Started. I wrote this years and years ago. It just really helps you to figure out what it really means to surrender your life to Christ. Many of you have grown up in a, maybe a home where Christian stuff was talked about, but you never really stuck or you don't understand it. This is real simple. It will help you. God bless you, Pastor Keith.